Well, again, family, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. If you're, well, no one's visiting here in person. It's not a, a member. But if you're visiting on our live stream, my name is Michael Matala, and I'm privileged to serve among this covenant family as the lead pastor of New Breed Church. And let me just say that it is good to worship our God together. It is good to worship our God together. We, we need it. Uh, it has been, as you are aware, uh, a difficult week. It's been a difficult week for uh, many in our church. It's been a difficult week for our city. It's been a difficult week for our country and even across the world. It's been a week where, unfortunately, we are once again painfully reminded and aware of the insufficiencies of man's systems to do what is right and just. It has been a week where we are reminded once again of what we have not forgotten, and that racism and injustice are present in our society, not just on an individual level, but on a systemic level as well. It has been a week where we have hurt and been angry and been frustrated, and I know that as I have had many of conversations with you, with many of you, and even having to wrestle through some hurt and some anger and some frustration of my own. But during this week, for me at least, it has been a comfort to remind myself of the fact that God is not silent on these issues. And what that means is that mankind is without an excuse. There is coming a day when God will judge. As Scripture tells us in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And so I am thankful that the Lord has led us into this series on race, justice, and the cross. I'm thankful that we get to continue in that series. It seems very timely. And in the series, we are looking at what God has to say about the issues that are plaguing our world. And as we are continuing on in this series of race, justice, and the cross this morning, I want to draw, draw our attention to this idea of the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. And so I want to read in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you're here in the building, I'd invite you to stand as we read God's Word. For those of you who are watching, you are welcome to stand where you are out of reverence for God's Word, because God's Word is to be revered whether you are in this building or in your homes. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 13, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is what James records. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable or guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do commit adultery but do or if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Heavenly Fathers, we consider this idea of the sin of partiality. I pray first and foremost, God, that for those of us who are in Christ, that the Holy Spirit would shine a light on areas of our lives where we may be partial and not know it. And for those who may be listening who have not placed their faith in Christ, I pray that the Holy Spirit will shine a light on areas of their life where they may be partial and not know it and so see their desperate need for Jesus. But God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let me here at the beginning uh, give you somewhat of an overview of this series. So kind of where we've been and, and also give you an idea of where we're going. So, so we began a few weeks ago uh, kind of considering this idea of the image of God, which is imprinted on every human being. And so with this image, we establish there comes with it an intrinsic worth and value for humankind. And not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we possess, we possess or our own qualities, but rather because we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. It's who we are. And so last week, we, we continued talking about the image of God, but we focused a little bit more on the scattering of the nations. We, we talked a little, a little bit about the beauty of diversity and how at the Tower of Babel, God was using this diversity as a means of fighting the temptation for ethnocentrism. Do you remember we talked a little bit about that? About a pride and a collective uniformity that leads to idolatry? And so we talked about that idolatry and as I mentioned, today we're going to talk a little bit about the sin of partiality, but following this week, we're going to spend the next couple weeks unpacking this idea of biblical justice. And then we'll conclude this series by taking a look, ultimately, at the reconciling power of the cross, but also what that reconciliation entails and what it demands. But first, this morning, the sin of partiality. You know, this week I talked with a, a pastor in our city, a good brother, um, trying to weigh through some of these, these issues, and he mentioned to me something that I found that was very interesting. He mentioned that, that dealing with the issue of racism is difficult because the Bible does not directly discuss the issue. 
Now, now, now I knew what he meant. He, he wasn't saying that he doesn't see you know, how you could talk about racism from the Bible, but what, what he was saying was that the Bible does not explicitly use the word racism. Now, if you remember back to last week, this is because as we talked about the concept of race as we understand it in our world today is a novel concept. It's a new idea. They weren't thinking in terms of race and thinking along lines of racism when the Bible was being written. And last week we discussed how race, as we understand it today, is a biological fiction but a social reality, meaning that this idea of race is just biologically untrue. I'm not going to unpack that. You can go back to last week's sermon if you missed it, uh, if you want to hear that idea unpacked a little bit more. But it's a biological fiction, but nevertheless, race is a social reality, meaning our society operates as if it were true. So again, it makes sense, though, that the Bible doesn't use the word racism, but that does not mean that the Bible does not address the heart of the issue. You see, in our society today, we have a lot of words to help us understand what's going on and what we're seeing. We have words like racism and ethnocentrism and bias and aggression and microaggression and prejudice and classism and sexism and discriminations and stereotypes. But all of these issues the Bible addresses, the Bible simply puts them under the umbrella of partiality. Of partiality. So the Bible understands racism as partiality. The Bible understands classism as partiality. The Bible understands sexism as partiality. The Bible understands discrimination as partiality. And so what we see in our text this morning is James address this issue of partiality. And he calls it what it is. He calls it sin. So let me try to offer a definition of partiality here. So uh, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible actually offers a a helpful definition. And so when it speaks of partiality, it says this. It's a, a scriptural expression generally used in a negative sense of partiality or favoritism shown to persons. And so in Hebrew, the expression refers literally to the lifting up of the face of another person. As 2 Chronicles 19.7, the lifting up the face of another person. While in the Greek, it means to receive the face of someone. Or, and I want you to focus on this, to accept his external appearance as the real thing and to make an evaluation on that basis. So this is Michael's definition, somewhat of a synopsis of that. Partiality is determining a person's worth and value by physical and earthly standards. Partiality is determining a a person's worth and value by physical and earthly standards. For example, determining a person's worth and value based on the color of their skin. That's partiality. Or determining a person's worth and value based on the language they speak or the country that they are from or the amount of money that they make or the home or lack thereof that they live in. Determining a person's worth and value by any of those things is partiality. And all of this, again, is partiality and the Bible has something to say about it. So what we learn in our text is that partiality is sinful. And we as believers are called to have no part in it. 
So what I want to do this morning as we work through this text is offer you four truths that we learn from our text that will help us think correctly about partiality and how we should live. And hopefully we'll be able to take some of these truths, again, apply it to our own lives in terms of how we as individuals operate, but also to help us see the world around us correctly. So I'm just going to jump in. Here's the first truth that I have for you from James's writing here in chapter 2. Partiality is contrary to the faith that we hold. Partiality is contrary to the faith that we hold. Look again at verses 1 through 5. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So, so James wants us to see here at the beginning that any partiality at its core is contrary to the faith we claim to hold. And in these verses that we just read, 1 through 5, he gives us three reasons why faith or why partiality is contrary to the faith that we hold. And the first reason he gives that partiality is contrary to the faith we hold is because it elevates man and diminishes Christ's glory. It elevates man and diminishes Christ's glory. Look again at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, the Lord of glory. Now, you see, when James makes this statement, he's not arbitrarily referring to Jesus as the Lord of glory. He didn't feel like it would just be nice to throw a random title in there. He, he's doing something. He is reminding his readers of the fact that Jesus is the only person who deserves reverence, praise, and adoration. That Jesus is the only person who is to be set apart and elevated in stature. Jesus alone is worthy because He is the Lord of glory. But on the flip side, on the flip side that should tell us something about ourselves. It also reminds us that we are not. It forces us to reckon with our condition in light of who Jesus is. If Jesus is indeed the Lord of glory, if He is holy and set apart, then it forces us to remind ourselves that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. It forces us to remember the fact that, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It forces us to reckon with the fact, fact that we as humans are not worthy of the affection and the love that God shows us. We have rebelled against Him. And so any reverence, praise, or adoration given to someone specifically based off of physical and earthly standards is ascribing to them glory that is rightly due Jesus. And our faith in Christ reminds us again that Jesus alone is the only one who deserves praise and adoration. When we ascribe glory to an individual or a group of people, Rather than Christ, 
we are even unintentionally attempting to diminish the glory of Christ. And so in other words, let me put it plainly, when we take an idea like racism, racism racism simply does not devalue another image bearer. It does that, but it simultaneously attempts to diminish the glory of Jesus by elevating a particular group of people to a place that is not theirs to hold. One commentator notes this, he said, the practice of favoritism That's what James is talking about, partiality, favoritism. It says, involved giving benefits to people who had outward advantages, such as money, power, or social prominence. And the readers of James were counting the favor of these important people by showing preference for them over the the poor. And he notes that the Mosaic law had forbidden giving respect to persons of prominence, Deuteronomy 1.17. And then he goes on and he notes that this verse... So verse 1 commends Jesus as our glorious Lord and warns that partiality is inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot give Christ the glory he is due while seeing specific people or groups as uniquely worthy of adoration over others because of physical or earthly standards. But the second reason he gives, still in this first point, as to why partiality is contrary to the faith we hold is because, James points out, partiality depends on worldly logic rather than the divine. It it depends on worldly logic rather than the divine. So, beginning in verse 2, excuse me, James gives an example of kind of what he's talking about. So he, he's, he's making up, <clears throat> in a sense, this example of partiality. And he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you who have the money, you, you sit over here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? But notice this in verse 5. This is very important. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, now that verse should make us think of another verse. At least it did for me. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, the logic of the world is that those who have are better than those who have not. That those who are wise are better than those who are foolish. That those with this skin color are better than those with this other skin color. That those who are fill in the blank are better than those who fill in the blank. But the Bible teaches us that God does not operate like this. I mean, Romans 2 tells us that God does not show partiality. God does not depend on worldly logic to accomplish his plan. God does not seek out those the world deems as best and then use them. 
I mean, all throughout Scripture, right, God flips worldly logic on its head. You see it when Jesus teaches, the first shall be last. What? Like, like Jesus is flipping worldly logic on his head. You see it when Jesus calls his disciples from the Galilee of the nations, right? These people that were considered ethnically tarnished. And it's from them that Jesus calls his disciples, not the religious elite of the day. It's Jesus flipping the worldly logic on its head. You see this when, when God says that the woman who gave two coins, which was basically nothing, gave more than the person who gave large sums of money. You see Jesus flipping worldly logic on its head. And the reason that God does not use worldly logic is because it is flawed and requires no faith. It requires no faith that God is going to do something that only He can do. So partiality is contrary to the faith we hold because partiality depends on worldly logic and worldly standards rather than the divine. But here's the third reason that partiality is contrary to the faith we hold. It's because it diminishes the reconciling work of the gospel. Partiality is contrary to the faith that we hold because it diminishes the reconciling work of the gospel. Now notice what he says there in verse 4. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, so I want you to notice this. That word distinctions there is actually translated as to be divided. So what he's saying is, have you not now divided people? And that's what partiality does. It divides. It separates and judges people based off physical realities, right? The color of one's skin, the amount of money a person has, the amount of education a person has, or where someone comes from. It divides people and separates and judges them based off these physical and earthly standards, partiality forces us to make divisions and then it judges people based off those divisions that we have made and I want you to hear me say this that division is the complete opposite of what the gospel does it is the complete opposite of what the gospel does. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of com and commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of Two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. The gospel provides a unity through reconciliation and partiality brings division. Therefore, you could conclude that partiality produces the complete opposite of the gospel. It produces the complete opposite of the gospel. It is contrary to the faith that we hold. So let me try to make this, this grand point in another way. And we'll come back to it. 
you cannot be an unrepentant racist Christian. You cannot be an unrepentant racist Christian. I'm not saying Christians can't struggle with racism. That's not what I'm saying, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But you cannot be an unrepentant racist Christian. Those two things are incompatible. If you are content in your racism, if you are content in your partiality, you are proving to be outside of the faith. You are proving to be outside of the faith because as we mentioned, partiality is contrary to the faith that we hold. Now here's the second lesson I want you to see this morning and I'll pick up the pace here a little bit. The second lesson that I want you to see from this this passage in James 2, 1 through 13 is that partiality is present in the world. Partiality is present in the world. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Now, now this is interesting to me, so track with me here. As James says that they, the church, have shown partiality and dishonored the poor, he then turns and says, and aren't those who are richer than you showing partiality and oppressing, oppressing you? Don't they drag you to court, these ones who blaspheme the name of God, and you are acting just like them and showing partiality? And in saying this, James is revealing that, listen, there is partiality all around you. And you as Christians are not supposed to be partaking in it. But but I want you to notice this as well. It is partiality in individuals that James notes is playing itself out in systems and structures. Now let me show you where I got that. You see, the problem is not just that people are partial. The problem is that those people have set up structures that promote and allow that partiality because notice where all of this is taking place. It's not a meaningless fact. The example he gives, beginning in verse 2, James makes it a point to say it's playing itself out in the assembly. That means in the gathered church. There was partiality, not just among individuals in their private lives. It was partiality that was playing itself out in the church, in this beautiful gift of God, in this structure. But it's not just in the church. right? Even in what he says, he identifies people who are being partial, and this partiality then plays itself out in the court system as they bring people to court. Right? We know it's not just in the church. We know that partiality plays itself out in other systems because throughout Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, God not only calls out partiality in an individual, but elsewhere in Scripture, He calls out partiality and gives specific laws to curb partiality in systems and systems instructions, in systems and structures, including the court. I mean, Leviticus 19.15, God says, do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Then verse 16, do not 
go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. God says, appoint judges and officials for your tribes in all your towns. The Lord your God is giving you. They are to judge the people with righteous judgment. Do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. Do not accept a bribe for it blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Pursue justice and justice alone so that you will live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Partiality plays itself out in individuals, and those individuals then take that partiality into worldly systems and structures. In church, we see it today. Let me give you some facts. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, While people of color make up 30% of the United States population, they account for 60% of those who are in prison. One in every 15 American men and one in every 36 Hispanic men are incarcerated in comparison to one in every 106 white men. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, one in three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Now, before you offer up that weak argument attacking the character of someone based on the color of their skin, the war on drugs has been waged primarily in communities of color where people of color, listen, are no more likely to receive, or are more likely to receive higher offenses. According to the Human Rights Watch, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. Let me say it again. People of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites, but they have higher rates of arrest. African Americans comprise 14% of regular drug users, but are 37% of those arrested for drug-related offenses. From 1980 to 2007, about one in three of the 25.4 million adults arrested for drugs were African Americans. One out of every three of the 25.4 million people arrested. Once convicted, black offenders receive longer sentences compared to white offenders. The U.S. Sentencing Commission stated that in the federal system, black offenders receive sentences that are 10% longer than white offenders for the same crimes. The Sentencing Project reports that African Americans are 21% more likely to receive mandatory minimum sentence than white defendants and are 20% more likely to be sentenced to prison than white defendants. And so therefore, we can contend that voter laws that prohibit people with felony convictions to vote disproportionately impact men of color. And let's not forget what just took place in our city. Where an unarmed woman was killed, and as many have pointed out, the officers were only held accountable for the bullets that missed. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think history tends to tell me I'm right. But I just have to believe that if there was a warrant granted under false pretense and police raided the home of a white couple in the East End and an unarmed white woman was killed, all hell would rain down on those officers. And at the very least, 
They would have been indicted, so it at least could have played itself out in court, seeing as they say you can indict a ham sandwich if you want to. Partiality is present in our world, and not just in individuals, but in the systems and structures that those individuals create and maintain. So don't come at me with that weak, systemic racism is a made-up concept when the God of the Bible gave laws to curb it. And right now, I just need you to see that. That's all I want you to do with that information right now. I just want you to see it. Because as we talk about justice over the next few weeks, we'll see what we do about it. But, but I just, we have to start with just recognizing, as James pointed out, that partiality is present in our world. And that partiality that we see in this world is nothing less than sin. This leads to our third truth this morning that I want you to see. The third truth is this. Partiality violates the law of God. Partiality violates the law of God. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. James records, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But... If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and fails or stumbles in one point is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what James does here, right, is first he brings up what he calls the royal law. The royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so what he's referring to is, is that statement that Jesus made in Matthew 23. You've heard it many times from me. Matthew 23, 37 through 40, where Jesus sums up the law and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so what James does is is remind believers, first and foremost, that hey, fulfilling the law is a good thing. It's a good thing. He says if if you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says you're doing well. It is a good thing to fulfill the law. But then he contrasts the royal law with partiality in verse 9. He says, so if you, if you fulfill the royal law, right? if you are loving God and loving people, you are doing good. But verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So what James does here is very significant. He pits the two against one another and says, if you show partiality, you cannot faithfully fulfill the royal law. He says, you are not faithfully walking in the good works which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in, Ephesians 2.10, if you are showing partiality, because partiality is sin, and it is a failure to love. And he goes on and he says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see, when God looks at people, he, he doesn't necessarily say, you're a liar, you're an adulterer, you're a murderer, you're a rapist. He pays attention to the particular sins, but when he looks at us, he says, you are guilty of the law. 
you, you have broken the law. You are a transgressor of the law. And so he goes on and he, he, he begins to argue by making that statement that no part of the law is inconsequential. No part of the law is inconsequential. Verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He's saying no part of the law is inconsequential. So, so what he's arguing there is that in terms of guilt and innocence, by God's holy standard, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. I like what one commentator said when he gave this picture. He said that God's law is not like a setup of ten bowling pins, which you knock down one at a time. He says it more resembles a pane of glass in which a break at any one point means that the entire pane is broken. You see, the reality is every one of us is a lawbreaker because not one of us can measure up to God's righteous and perfect standard. Not one of us can stand on our good works in the presence of a holy God, but we praise God for the message of the gospel. Because listen, it is not just those who are racist who are lawbreakers, according to God's standard. It's, it's not just those who are sexist who are lawbreakers. It's not just those who, who ridicule and belittle the poor who are lawbreakers. It is also those who lie. It is also those who are conceited. It is also those who have pride. It is also those that lust in their hearts and in their minds. It's also those that dishonor their parents. It's also those that, 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 that exasperate their children. It is fill in the blank. It is all of those things make you a lawbreaker. And so that's the beauty of the gospel, right? Is that every one of us is destined to die because we are lawbreakers. Every one of us. But the beauty of the gospel is that when we were unrighteous, God sent the righteous one. And Jesus Christ died in our place, bearing the weight of being a lawbreaker on himself. By his stripes we are healed. He paid for our transgressions. He paid for our sin. He took it and nailed it to a cross, canceling the debt that we owed by nailing it to a tree. And he was buried and raised three days later. And the beauty of the gospel is that though we are lawbreakers, though we are sinners, we can place our faith in Jesus in what he has done on the cross, casting the full weight of our dependence on him. We can repent of our sins by turning from our sins and running after God's truth and find salvation and forgiveness. Therefore, when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as lawbreakers. Praise God. But he sees us bearing the righteousness of his son. And, and here's the thing though, church. Now, in light of the gospel, we as Christians can do what we previously could not do. We can pursue righteousness. We can repent of sin and grow to be made more in the image of God. We can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, kill sin, including partiality, in our own lives. The gospel gives us power to overcome sin. And so the Christian life requires that we fight sin. It requires that we fight to kill partiality in our own lives and to kill partiality in the structure that our lives support, right? It calls us to not only do that, but it calls us to, to kill pride and to kill arrogance and to kill lying and lusting. And the gospel not only calls us, but it equips us to fight that fight. And this leads to the fourth and final truth that I want you to see this morning. 
the fourth truth that we see is that we must fight against the temptation to be partial. We must fight against the temptation to be partial. Look at verses 12 and 13. James concludes this section and he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Now let me read you what one commentator writes about these two verses because I found it to be very helpful. And why try to re-say something that somebody has already said better? He notes this. He said, these verses include the discussion of partiality by appealing for obedience to the royal law in both speech and action. Those who judge others often forget that they must face God's judgment. And the reality of God's coming judgment is an incentive for Christians to speak and act obediently. The standard of judgment in that day will be the law that gives freedom or the law of liberty. And he says this is a reference to the gospel. And in John 8, 32-36, Jesus had described the gospel as a truth which sets people free. And James echoed these words in verse 12. Those who obey God by faith in Christ Jesus find freedom to serve God and escape the fear of future judgment. And then he says this, and faith in Christ Jesus provides freedom to escape hatred and self-love to love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, the only way we can fight the sin of partiality is by first being freed from our slavery to sin by what, through what Christ has done on the cross. Right? That's Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are a slave to our sins. And Jesus breaks those chains of slavery and provides freedom. He frees us from the bondage to sin. You know, I'm, I don't want this to, to sound callous. I am not surprised when the world is racist. I'm not. I'm not surprised when the world is prejudiced. I am not surprised when the world is unjust. I am not surprised when the world shows partiality. I hate it. It still hurts when I see it. But I'm not surprised by it. Because I know that the only thing that will overcome a racist heart, the only thing that will overcome a heart of partiality is a new heart. And that's what the gospel does. It doesn't simply make us better. It makes us new. And so the only way we can begin to fight partiality is by being made new. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we declare it to others. I said in the very first message of this series, if, if what we do in the world, especially in the world we are in right now, when we are having conversations about issues of race, injustice, and systemic injustices, when, when, we, when we engage in that, I said in the very first message of this series that if our engagement does not have the gospel present, we are doing nothing of real value. You all know me. You know my heart. I, I want to see systems of racism overcome. But I just want to be candid with you. We can tear down the systems that are in place right now. And without the gospel, what do you think will be built in their place? 
more partial systems. They'll just be partial to somebody else. They'll just be racist towards somebody else. They'll be prejudiced towards somebody else because what we need more than anything is, to pe- is for people to have new hearts and then to take those new hearts into systems and structures to see them changed. The gospel makes us new and what we need is something made new, not something better. But I want you to hear me say this that the fight against partiality has not ended for us when we believe the gospel. As the author I just read stated, faith in Jesus Christ provides freedom to escape hatred and self-love and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And even for the believer, this is an ongoing pursuit. Because here's the thing, while I am not surprised when we see partiality in all of its forms in this world, I am very surprised when partiality is left unchecked in the church. I am very surprised when it is left unchecked in the church. We have to be honest about the fact that even as believers, we can be tempted to show partiality. Remember earlier on I said that that I think Christians can struggle with racism. Christians can struggle with classism and sexism and prejudices and stereotypes. They can struggle with these things, but they have to actually be struggling. Trying to repent, fighting for holiness. Because when we became believers, not all of our sin just magically disappeared. There's still work. That's the nature of progressive sanctification. We are being progressively made more into the image of God. I have patience for a repentant believer who is wrestling with this stuff. I am shocked and honestly have not a lot of patience for, for partiality that is left unchecked in people's lives in the church. But we, again, have to be honest about about the fact that even as believers, we can be tempted to show partiality. And hear me, I don't care who you are. If you are black, if you are white, if you are rich, if you are poor, if you are old, if you are young, if you are liberal, if you are conservative, if you are male, if you are female, we can be tempted as believers to be partial. And it will look different depending on who we are. Right? We just try to shroud it in righteousness, though. Listen, if you hate the racist and treat them differently than you would any other sinner, you are showing partiality and it is sin. It is sin. If you hate the conservative, if you hate the liberal and treat them differently than you would any other sinner, you are showing partiality. You're showing partiality. Jesus hated structures and systems of oppression and sin, but he loved people. He loved people. You see, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Christ has freed us to fight against this sin of partiality. And we can overcome the sin of partiality in Christ. And I, and I want to mention something here. I know I deviate from some people on this. There are those that would argue that as long as you, you, you live in this world, you're going to operate with a racial bias. Basically saying you're going to operate with partiality. I don't believe that to be true. Because I believe that the gospel can overcome any sin. 
And I refuse to believe that there is some sin in this world that the gospel is not sufficient to give us victory over. I don't believe that. I don't believe that someone will always be racist. I don't believe they will always see with a racial bias in a way that leads to partiality. I don't believe that because I believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We can overcome sin by the power of the spirit. We can overcome the sin of partiality in our own lives. And a good starting place may be spending some time in prayer and allowing the Holy Spirit to direct you to where you may be most tempted to show partiality. Pleading with the Spirit to give you eyes to see where you are falling short. And then combat what the Holy Spirit shows you with the truth of the gospel. Remind yourselves that what, what Pastor Curtis used to say when he was here, that we are not better than, we are simply better off in Christ. That the gospel forces me to reckon with the fact that my heart is deceitfully wicked above all else who could know it. It forces me to reckon with the fact that I am a rebel who has fallen short of the glory of God. It forces me to not think too highly of myself. So combat the temptation towards partiality with the truth of the gospel. Because church, <clears throat> at the end of the day, we want to be people who love God and love our neighbors well. At the end of the day, we want to be people who love God and love our neighbors well. And church, the world so desperately needs to see that from us right now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, once again, as I have found myself praying so frequently, I am thankful that you are not silent on the issues that we are facing in our world. I am thankful that we are not left to our own devices to try to figure out what is right and good and holy, but God, you have spoken and your word is powerful. God, and I thank you that Jesus Christ has come into this world to pay the penalty for sinners like me. God, that when I could not reach you, you reached down to us. God, you have provided salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. You have provided the opportunity for our hearts to be made new. And, and out of those newness of hearts, God, the newness of heart, we can now fight to look more like Jesus, something we cannot do apart from a new heart. So God, I pray that we would fight. We would fight diligently to kill sin wherever it is present in our life. But as we specifically focus this morning on the sin of partiality, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would be attentive to where the Holy Spirit is leading and pointing out areas of rebellion still. And that while we fight that sin, we would rejoice in the fact that we are not defined by that sin because of who we are in Christ Jesus. And let that be motivation to continue to fight even when it gets hard. And God, we pray that as the gospel goes forth into this world, as we are being salt and light in this world, that we would see hearts transformed. 
And as we see more and more hearts transformed by the gospel, we would see these individuals step in to the spheres that you have placed them, into the systems and structures where they work and they live, and that that new heart would radiate a new and better way of doing things. God, we need you to intervene because we are not equipped. God, we are not equipped on our own to overcome sin and Satan and the spiritual warfare that is raging around us. But you are strong. You are strong to save. You are strong to deliver. You are strong to heal. You are strong to redeem. So God, not only will we fight sin in our own lives but as we fight for holiness in this world I pray that we will fight with the right weapons that we will proclaim the gospel unashamed without fear with boldness with conviction believing that the gospel still changes things believing that you are still a God who redeems we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.